Danielle Fetter. I'm Alexandra Lee, and we're the co-hosts of Partial View Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about how the sort of zeitgeisty conversations around like the great resignation and quiet quitting are manifesting in the theater industry. And we're going to be talking to Percival Horneck and Todd Brian Backus, who are the co-hosts of the podcast Dungeons and Drama Nerds, which explores the intersection between theater and tabletop role-playing games and is awesome. Percival Harnick is a dramaturg and playwright. He's currently an MFA candidate in dramaturgy at UMass Amherst. And companies that he's worked with in the past include Arena Stage, Team Awesome Robot, Andy Summer Playhouse, Luna Stage, and the Theater Communications Group. And Todd is a Newark's director, dramaturg, and illustrator based in Portland, Maine, who likes to work on self-described weird theater that stretches the theatrical imagination. And he's done that in two seasons of a reading series called Too Strange to Live, Too Too Weird to Die, and is the co-founder and former artistic producer with Power Out and is a co-founder and former producer of Hot Pepper Theater. So welcome, both of you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. We're so psyched to have you both on because we really want to dive into what's going on in the theater industry right now. We've been seeing a lot of pushback against the kind of culture of labor that a lot of us saw primarily like pre-pandemic, but has started to come back post-pandemic. Yeah, we're really we're really psyched to to get into this topic because it's one that I think affects people in production, people in admin, people in academia, and people on stage, the yes. actors, everybody. Yeah, it's so interesting to me how it has paralleled with the sort of national labor movement that's been going on, but also all the ways that it's pretty actively deviated from it. And we're thinking of some of the examples of this from like pre-pandemic as you know, BAM voted to unionize in 2019 and then actually ratified their union contract sometime in 2020, like early in the pandemic months. And then when theater reopened, I feel like shit kind of hit the fan in some places. There was that walkout by the crew at Williamstown Theater Festival. There's that a big push now to eliminate 10 out of 12s from tech weeks and... A few theaters have actually gone ahead and done that. I was just reading that OSF, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, eliminated 10 out of 12s. So, and I think switched to a five-day work week, if I'm not mistaken, or they're moving towards Mm. that. (laughs) The dream. At Portland Stage, we were able to eliminate 10 out of 12s, and we still haven't quite gotten to the 40-hour work week, but that seems like where we're heading like that seems like it will solve a number of other problems for us that have arisen during the pandemic there's also been a lot of pushback on covid protocols and i know that there have been a couple theaters in particular that were sort of just denying covid protocols for cost or just ease of production and there was pushback from production members and actors at those theaters i think that that has not gone away, obviously. We're still in a pandemic. We're still dealing with these issues of safety. And as long as I've been working in theater, I was always told, like, safety first. Safety first for the actors and everybody working backstage, everyone at all. And so it's interesting that now 
our idea of safety has shifted to the point where people have to say, I don't feel safe anymore. And that's true with things like intimacy coordinators, Mm -hmm. too. Yeah, absolutely. Just our definition of safety has changed. Mm-hmm. Well, I also, I also feel like part of this, too, is this sort of broader recognition in the industry when the um, when the We See You White American Theater statement came out in 2020, this sort of recognition that, like, because I think a lot of people saw that and were like, oh, how is 10 out of, how are 10 out of 12 a racial justice issue? And it started a lot of conversations about how, like, oh, actually, safety in all its facets, including, like, safety to go to work and not be on the receiving end of microaggressions is a key component of my ability to engage in my workplace. So I think too, there's been this sort of broadening of understanding what is and is not a labor issue in the theater such that people are sort of saying, you know, like uh, it's all of, it's all of these things. It's the hours that we're meant to work and the pay that we're receiving and the benefits that we're able to get and also how we're treated when we're there, which I think has been a good shift. And speaking of benefits, I'm curious what each of you have experienced spanning your careers in terms of things that theaters have tried to say, like to to justify low salaries or what we would now maybe call straight up exploitative work culture or just like disregarding burnout and any sort of work-life balance. Like one of the most notorious things I see is Oh, well, you get comp tickets. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I, the one that I've seen most often and the one that I've received when I did my apprenticeship was it's an educational experience, so we don't have to pay you a living wage. (laughs) But the education that I received was uh, doing labor that the theater could not function without for 70 hours a week. (laughs) 70 hours. (sighs) We're absolutely doing episodes on internships and apprenticeships that's like a whole other wormhole right and like the laws around what constitutes an educational experience no exactly because i wanted to mention when i did my apprenticeship they made one of the requirements i was an administrative apprentice they made one of the requirements you have to work on a production in some capacity for education which meant that i was a free spot op when I already knew how to work a spotlight. Tell me how that's educational. Right, it's fully just free labor. (laughs) I would say like, so I am from like a single income working class family. Me going to get a theater degree was something I needed to like convince, I had to get a graphic design degree to convince my mom that like getting a theater degree was not a waste of money. And when I looked at apprenticeships and internships back in 2011, I went through like every Lort website to see like who had internships and apprenticeships that were relevant to the work that I wanted to do. And then who could pay me and who could house me enough like pay and house me enough that I wouldn't die. And that list went from like 75 theaters to I think five. Like there were five that I felt I could do because I couldn't rely on my parents to like help supplement buying me food. I could thankfully rely on my parents to like drive me to Maine, which is where I got my first gig. Like that wasn't a huge burden, but if they were trying to drive me to Oregon, like that wouldn't have happened. You know, and I think that was very eye opening and telling for me at the start of my career. And it has always been about like, how are these different companies justifying doing things? How are we talking about things? Um, in the summer of, I think, 21, when 
didn't wasn't there like an open letter from yes. Eugene O'Neill yes. apprentices that was real bad. So at Portland Stage, we had been like walking through all of the We See White American Theater stuff and all of these discussions, and our apprentices were involved in these discussions. And then that letter came out um, as I was traveling uh, to help a friend with something. And I remember like getting off of a plane and having this flood of texts from my apprentices being like, we thought we had it bad. <laughs> like we still want it better, but like no. we thought we had it bad. And like, oh God, this is what's happening in other places. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> like this is part of why I wound up at Portland Stage. And don't get me wrong. There's still a lot of things that I want us to be doing much, much better, but like, I couldn't have worked at the O'Neill. Right. I re- if I wanted yeah, to. I remember looking at it and seeing... That you have to pay $2,000 to do exactly. it. Yeah, right? you had to pay them. Mm-hmm. And that was true for, I believe, Williamstown also, or some of the other... Certain parts of Williamstown, yeah. Some of them, yeah. Some of the Williamstown and some of the Barrington Sage summer stock like internship apprenticeships like even if they paid you you were basically spending all of it to pay them for the housing Mm -hmm. so yeah it's wild and like it says a lot to me Todd that like you're when you were narrowing down the list of Lord theaters your threshold was like will I die (laughs) (laughs) well from lack of money well it was (laughs) like like, I needed housing and I needed to have enough money that I could like what what attracted me to Portland, one of the things that attracted me to Portland stage was we had housing and utilities. And at the time it was like 90 a week, which is not enough money, but it was enough that I could buy ramen and like live, you know, like I couldn't deal with any substantial things. I couldn't pay any debts. I deferred student loan payments, but like I could pay to eat and be fine and not in a way that I was like starving myself. And that, to me, was an okay threshold. And there were certain places that, like, could pay you more but wouldn't house you. And the cost of housing was just, like, undoable. This was this was my experience yeah. in Washington, D.C. at $300 a week. Oh, God, yeah. Can't imagine it. That was about what I made in Philly at the Walnut. Yeah. I split a studio apartment with another person. <laughs> Yikes. I mean, the reason I was able to do that is because my grandparents lived in the suburbs of Philly. And so I was able to live with my grandparents and commute in to Center City. But most of the other apprentices were like they were they were roommates with other Mm -hmm. apprentices. And like at the time, because this was 10, 11 years ago at this point, that weekly pay because it wasn't taxed. The way they have the had it set up at the Walnut is that it's literally untaxable income because it's scholarship funds through their education department and through like grant uh, money. Mm-hmm. So what we were getting paid weekly and the fact that it wasn't taxed did make it possible to live in Philly and do this job. The issue since, of course, like Walnuts come up in these conversations, too, and a lot of that had to do with... Um, Articles talking about, you know, racism, microaggressions, sexual harassment, things of that nature at the Walnut, but also the fact that the pay for apprentices has not gone up since I was there. Mm -hmm. And now it's certainly not enough to live in the city. Mm -hmm. Even like beyond pay, I don't know, I'm not the only dramaturg in the Zoom, so I assume that everyone else has also experienced some form of this, but I remember having this really terrible literary manager job creep where, like, 
I would have the things that I was supposed to do, which were like read and evaluate plays and talk to the people who submitted plays and like do some dramaturgy for the shows. But then that department became like the person I would be the person that everybody else emails when they don't know exactly whose job something is. So they're like, you can write marketing copy, right? Or like, oh, you can um, meet with this random person who wants to meet the artistic director, but like she doesn't have time. Like you can do all of these other things that are not your job, right? Or coordinate these projects that are not your responsibility. And I'm like, no. A hundred percent. What about to establish this baseline of like where the theater industry is starting from? here in terms of these conversations and improving the conditions. Did you ever experience things like not being able to use your time off or your vacation days, sort of not, or being discouraged from it or, or like working while sick? There was a, there is a day where I was tracking script changes for a new play process and I was really, really sick. I had like the flu or something. Um, and they asked me to like send them the pages to print, like process everything and send it for stage management to print while I was homesick. And I was like, <laughs> you might not want me to do this right now because um, I'm not with it. But like, sure. So, yes, <laughs> absolutely. I hit a point of friction, I think in my first or second year at Portland Stage. I supervise um, three apprentices, um, one of whom might be in a rehearsal room, one of whom might be on a run crew position, and one of whom is like up in the literary department with me at any given time. I'm the only person all three of these people report to, and I had PTO, but like there was never a time for me to take it because it meant leaving three people unsupervised at any given time. And someone on staff was like, well, can't you just do what they did in the education department where like one person took PTO and then the other person took a PTO and I was like who's the other person here <laughs> like I'm I'm a one-man department Who, who's who's gonna cover me and they were like oh <laughs> okay yeah yeah mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, one of the other things that I think I've experienced beyond just you know sort of being gently encouraged to work while sick or to not take vacation or like Ooh, those dates don't work. You know, oh, like can you yeah. <laughs> is a whole lot of um, zero room for growth, zero mentorship. Like there's yeah. no. I'm speaking just for myself. Like I felt like I was working my ass off, really hustling because you, that's what you're told you need to do to like advance in really any job, right? And especially when you're like fresh out of college, you're in your early twenties, and you're really hungry and you're really ready. And then slowly realizing that it was going to amount to literally nothing except a lateral move to a different job. And bad mental health and, you know, your, your distance, distance from your family. I mean, the thing that comes up time and time again is that we have these really low standards for what qualifies as a good job in the industry or good benefits in the industry. And I think that that's an important conversation to bring up because of how the job market looks right now. I still feel like it is very difficult to get a job in the arts. I have a feeling that that is not going to go away. But like even even when people were saying, you know, everyone everyone's quitting, you can't find work anywhere. I feel like there were still so many people who were saying, oh, I'm going to pay you know, 36000 for a full-time job for 50 hours a week or something like that, and people would snap it up. 
because that hunger and that hustle culture is not gone. And I think, yeah, I think that really the overarching, I think, theme of all of this is the idea that the amount that we care about the thing Mm -hmm. is supposed to outweigh any negatives. Yeah, because I feel like the narrative that I was offered to latch onto when I was graduating from college was very much this narrative of like I went to my apprenticeship and was told you know use your email address use the connections that we can make for you like but you have to do all the legwork yourself you have to build this yourself like all the benefits of this are things that you have to decide that you want and go and get them and I was like cool because I was 22 like what else was I going to say but I think that mentality of oh you just have to work harder and the things that you want will come to you in the theater industry applies too to like oh take this job that doesn't pay you enough because you just keep working harder or you know if you really care about this you'll freelance and supplement your income and you'll do three shows at the same time and never see your family (laughs) completely burn out yeah I also think I'm really interested to hear your perspective Percy on kind of the job market conversation in academia and maybe in arts focused academia right now i know it's very it's been tenuous are you seeing kind of the same things we've been talking about i in my and i'm certainly not speaking for my program as a whole or for like like i'm speaking from my experience exclusively but like um there are very few conversations that we're even having about like about the job market or about marketing oneself in part because I because my program is designed very much for people who are working professionals who want the credential which I think is what most grad schools are secretly for I think there are very few this is my hot take I think there are very few theater grad programs in the country that are genuinely intended for you to go to learn how to do theater better I think many of them are just like have a somewhat stable income for three years and get a piece of paper and continue doing what you were already doing but it's yeah it's 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 bleak because mfas don't necessarily like you don't get an mfa to go further into academia so nobody is there under the illusion that they're going further into academia unless they're switching fields or like doing something else afterwards so it's yeah like it's a lot of reinforcing these same you just have to be okay with this sort of mentality as opposed to like we're in a school environment where things don't have to be this way so we're not going to do them but in fact rather it's like we're giving you practice at doing 10 out of 12s or we're giving you practice Mm -hmm. at working these really punishing hours or we're giving you practice at not having control over when you can go out of town yeah which is a bummer can i tell you all something wild that happened last year as we were phasing out 10 out of 12s we had this conversation with the apprentices where someone was like but if you phase out 10 out of 12s and the industry doesn't aren't you like preventing me from being prepared for ostensibly like when i am exploited later Um, like not the words that they used but they were like aren't you setting me up for failure by not prepping me in the way that like the industry is currently framed. And I was just like, I hear what you're saying. And also like the goal should be to get those other people to stop doing 10 out of 12s and not for us to exploit you more. So you're ready for exploitation later. It should be to teach you what your standards should be. Exactly. Mm, Wow. That's really interesting. And that was just like a really, 
That was a shocking moment for me where I was like, I can't believe these words are coming out of this person's mouth. But like, how do I help make this be a good, like a positive teaching moment? Like for me, because I don't feel like I was given a lot of mentorship in my position. Um, I have always tried to have like very candid conversations with my mentees about what we're doing, what the goals are, what our hopes are. And like, hey, if something goes wrong, like, let's talk about it. And let's see how we can like fix this for the future and not like this needs to be this way forever. But like, these are the reasons that we're currently doing this now. And I try to have a very like, very transparent policy about all of the things that we do to the best of my knowledge, because I think that's useful for growth. And I think when we're just like, eh, we don't know why we do it that way. We just do. We just like stop conversations and keep people from interrogating. That's awesome, though, because I feel like transparency is one of the things that we lack the most in our industry. Yeah. Like, I just, I admire you for that, Yeah, no, that's awesome. (laughs) I think that has a lot to do with COVID policies and things that happened during the shutdown, too, is, like, there wasn't any real transparency about the decisions these theaters were making as far as furloughs and layoffs and... I, I would... I'm going to interject and just say some places did it better than others. Sure. That's true. I think that's true for everything. And some, I would, my, my experience working at two different performing arts institutions during COVID, one was very transparent, one was not. And you saw a difference and you felt a difference. Yeah. yeah so just want to interject that not all theaters. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, maybe that's our maybe that's our slogan. <laughs> Hashtag not all theaters. <laughs> Hashtag not all theaters. Um, but yes, yes. Please continue. But yeah, I think like during that shutdown when there was so much, I feel like that was the time. Like it was presented as this time for all of us to really pause and reflect and you know, reevaluate the way we were doing things and make changes. And I feel like there was a whole lot of lip service paid to that from a whole lot of places. And I've just been thinking a lot about and reflecting about what improvements have actually come to fruition. And it feels sometimes very frustratingly minimal. It feels like Mm -hmm. it's on a very, it's happening on a very individual small scale basis like with Todd with the way you try to mentor your apprentices like it's it's more about that than it's been about the systemic change that's necessary wondering what you all have seen or think about that I have a really it's it's still kind of small but we were very proud of it at the time which is that one of my apprentice classes um after the summer of 2020 had all just sort of been like actually it's bullshit that we were paid this little and treated this way so we sent a letter to the senior staff of the theater that we had worked at and we're just like you should pay you should pay your apprentices more and you should do x y and z things if you're not going to house them and then we had a bunch of meetings with them and they rate they doubled the weekly stipend for those apprentices they created a lot more structure around how mentorship works within that program this had been historically a program that was exclusively for artists of color and they had opened it up after i believe getting like some kind of threat of a discrimination lawsuit which is silly and ridiculous but like they they had opened it up 
And we were sort of like, no, actually, this legacy is there for a reason. You should bring it back to its original purpose. And they did, um, which are all really, really great things. So that was one improvement that I was really heartened to see, although we really had to bully them into it. (laughs) I know that the theater where I did my apprenticeship is completely right now revising the onboarding program for everyone, not just apprentices, but also they're revising how mentorship works at the theater. And I think that that was not necessarily brought on by the events of 2020, but I'm sure that it's all you know interconnected there i think what is hard for so many of these theaters is like portland stage kept trucking through the pandemic we were one of the few professional theaters that was allowed to still produce under aea guidelines which was like cool in part because nobody lives in maine and so there was like low caseload (laughs) um yeah like honestly that's part of it but it meant that like we were adapting to covid policies and didn't have the opportunity to just like pause and say like, hey, what are the things about our practice that are really working? And what are the things about our practice that like drive us all crazy? And how could we, through like trying to get more funding or trying to do this or trying to do that, like improve different things? We never got to like just pump the brakes and think about all of that at the same time. And so we tried to do that alongside, you know, get this show up in three weeks, get the next show up in three weeks, get the next show up, and so on. And I think that industry mentality of like, we always have to keep producing has prevented a lot of the theater industry from being able to take stock of like, what is working, what is not working. When is the last time the the leaders of whatever theater you work at got to get together with other leaders of other theaters to talk about best practices? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like, just think about that for a minute. Like, that, that just doesn't happen no. because no one has time. No. Like, they are always hustling. And this is part of why, like, we don't have good mentorship in the theater. Because, like, people are always, like, everyone is always hustling, including the people at the top sometimes. I mean, I don't think, you know, what's his foot to the public is hustling. <laughs> you get what I'm saying. And so I think because we have been told our whole careers that like you are lucky to be in this industry, it is mm-hmm. a, a gift for you to be able to practice your art. Um, we don't have time to think about like, how could we make this better? And I think some of these reflections and some of these conversations have been useful for people, but I don't think we've had time to really like institutionalize and best practice yeah i was i was just gonna say i was talking to someone recently who said that they felt kind of obligated to stay with a theater which had been okay to her like not good not bad but okay to her she felt obligated to stay because they worked hard to not furlough and not lay off people during the pandemic and so she was like you know i'm leaving but i should have I shouldn't have stayed as long as I did just out of that obligation. The scarcity mindset of like, if if I give this job up, there won't be another. Also, I, Todd, I did not realize that Portland stage did not shut down. Did you not shut down at all? Like not even in like March, April? So in, um, we had to close Native Gardens early and then we had to like cancel two productions. But by the fall, we started a little later than we would have. Mm-hmm but we did a full five show season. Wow. Which is smaller than we would have normally done because we like added space between them instead of being in basically rep between production and rehearsal all the time. But yeah, no, we, we've we stayed like 
pretty open the whole time, which is cool and also like right was uh, hard. Yeah, yeah. Alex and I, when we were talking about this episode, we started using the shorthand of like the show must go on culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think that's really it. Percy, mm-hmm. we're going to say something. Well, I also think that, and this might just be my personal experience, but I've definitely had this like used in my various theater professional experiences. But I also feel like they, a lot of companies tend to do that nonprofit, like we're a family thing mm-hmm. to sort of guilt you into like feeling this sense of loyalty and obligation because there is that like high school theater vibe of like, oh, we're like all in it together and like we're going to go to Denny's afterward. And I think people try and preserve that feeling into professional theater and it's not the same thing at all. Um, And like we should not pretend that it is because it's a craft that we've Mm -hmm. all worked very hard to be good at doing so that people will pay us money for it. And like, yeah. And I think that's also part of why people don't view it as labor when in fact like it is labor it just happens to be labor that you enjoy doing um most of the time i mean i would say circling back to part of the start of this conversation with like the phrase quiet quitting has kind of rubbed me the wrong way but i do prefer like acting your wage yes um, Mm -hmm. which i think is great and like i'm sure some of it i i have tried to act my wage my whole career because i i was taught early to say no to things because I started as a marketing apprentice. Was that by, were you taught that by other people in the industry or was that influence from outside? So some of it was some people in the industry, but they were on the marketing side, um, which I think has like a very different point of view. Oh, that's interesting because my background is in marketing and I disagree, mm. but say more. (laughs) Well, so like um, as someone who was trained as an illustrator, I know I have, it's right here actually. Um, I have the... Uh, graphic arts guild handbook for like pricing and like what your labor is worth for all of these different organizations the size of the project you're doing whether you're like selling your art or whether you're leasing it or what have you and i was taught in school these are standards that you should be able to expect if you're going to work in graphic design and then i went to a theater and they were like ha 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 ha, ha. no we are not going to pay you anywhere near that but because i was good at my job there were a lot of people in the theater who like kept asking me to do more and more and more and within my first year my boss the marketing director at the time carol harris was like you have to say no to people like you cannot do all of this work and put out your best work you have to say no to them so like assess what you can do and give people reasonable like i could maybe do x for you or like no i don't have time to do this well for you at all sorry which was useful for me, but in coming back, I went to New York for a couple of years and then I came back to Portland Sage as the literary manager. And I was hourly at the time and I was very like, yeah, you're paying me for 29 hours. I'm going to work 29 hours. And that's all you get. If you want to give me more because you want more work to get done, we can talk about that. But like until that point, no, now I'm salaried, but I still generally work 40 hours a week because that's what I feel they're paying me for. And once I get past 40 hours, I'm like, cool, sorry. Like, if you want more work done, mm-hmm. get me an associate or pay me more. But you mm-hmm. don't pay me staying in on yeah. the weekend kind of money. Yeah, no. Mm-hmm. That's funny because agreed. so much of my experience before going to grad school was in marketing. And I still work in, like, marketing and communications and that sort of thing. And I very much view it as in relationship to dramaturgy. But 
I think the the vibe of the but we're we're a family. The staff is a family kind of culture outweighed everything at the places that I worked. And so the um pressure to just just do everything it was like it really felt like peer pressure a lot of it and it's less the sort of first one in the office last one to leave and more all of the extracurricular isn't the word because that's it's not school but like sort of the extracurricular activities related to working at a theater all of the pre or post show events opening nights all these other sort of associated events and obligations that you might be given comp time for attending, but probably not. Other duties as assigned. <laughs> exactly. Our favorite phrase, which um, I'm going to tell everyone this, but I found it on a sticker and it's on my laptop now. It just says other duties as assigned. It's beautiful. I can send you the link if you're interested. I love it. You showed me and it's great. It's so good. It's so good. To kind of move forward, I'm interested to know from both of you what type of culture, you know, you kind of prioritize and what are you what are you really looking for in your work in terms of benefits or something like that? Well, I'm in grad school, which is like a whole other thing. Grad school is yeah. the worst <laughs> because they expect you to do four jobs in one job. So that's like irrelevant and like an outlier. I don't know. I the thing that I want most professionally at this point um, is I want a job that I can stop thinking about when I'm not working and I don't have to think about it until I come in the next day and I'm at work again. And then I have to think about it because like all of my professional theater experience, there's either the expectation that like I will answer a text if the playwright texts me at 10 p.m. about new pages or like I remember vividly towards the end of my apprenticeship like on my Monday one day off because I was in rehearsals so I was working Tuesday to Sunday I had to use that one day to go to New York to do a job interview so I'm on the Amtrak trying to like get this major script change all set up for rehearsal the next day because I was like traveling all day that day and wasn't going to be able to like get up early the next morning and do it and it was a whole fucking mess and it's just like oh what I wouldn't give to like have a job where I don't have to think about it when I'm not there which feels like very little to ask but apparently (laughs) apparently that's asking for a lot but the other thing too is that I feel like in my experience theaters universally offer horrible health insurance like I have never received good health insurance from a theater and like as a transgender person I have specific health needs that many health insurance companies do not cover in their policies and many theaters have to be bullied into offering those things so also like Mm. please give us good health insurance yeah that's so hard because it's like what is actually in the theater's control versus what is just a failure on a national level is sometimes tricky to parse Mm. out no i feel like you can tell when when places are trying to prioritize their people yeah i mean you can tell from the culture of of a place it like in that example specifically like for example it relates to like environments with lots of microaggressions or environments mm-hmm. where people of various marginalized identities are made to feel like a burden or like like they're like they're being inconvenient by having needs related to um, things about them that they cannot change. So yeah, I don't know. A lot of, a lot of theaters, yeah, don't want to do any sort of self-examination on that front either in terms of actually dealing with like very microaggressive work cultures. I will say like over the last couple of years, like many people, I have looked at a lot of job 
postings and the ones that appealed to me the most and like who knows if they would actually do this in practice um but the ones that appealed to me the most were things that were like look we understand that like this is an administrative role but we also understand that like you're probably working in theater because you are a theater artist and so like we want to work with you depending on skill and experience but like definitely with you to help you like deepen and broaden your artistic practice whatever that might be i was looking at associate artistic director roles and they were like if you're an actor like we'll see if we can get you on the stage if you're a playwright we'd love to like help you workshop some stuff if you're a director we want to see like can we start in some festivals and then get you on the main stage those are things that are important to us because we want to invest in you as an artist as you are investing in us as a company and like that was very appealing to me as a person this thought that like your artistic growth matters too like not just what can you do for the company but what can we help provide you with yeah i have not seen that in my more entry level (laughs) kinds of positions that is it's not an often yeah but i feel like so many like when i'm talking to my apprentices about like where do they go next um i often make them set up a a list of like career goals and things that they just want for their lives and look at each possibility not as like i need to be working in the theater but like does this bring you closer to those goals and some of those goals might be like i want to live near the mountains and go hiking so like yeah maybe you don't like go to west virginia for this festival for a year or something like if that's not going to get you what you want or like if you want to live in a city don't apply to something in utah Mm -hmm. like that's okay um but i feel like this scarcity mindset that we have people just like go for whatever they're qualified for that is available as opposed to assessing like will this opportunity take me like closer to my career or personal goals or further from it and i think like it's okay to take a job that is not in theater that will give you the money and resources and the time off to like take three weeks off and produce a show if that's what you want to do. Yep. And that is something I, when I was furloughed in the pandemic and I thought I was going to lose my job and I didn't know what I was going to do. I actually was wondering, like I felt this in, you know, mid 2020 that I was like, a lot of people are going to leave the industry because they have to right now. And a lot of people are going to be stubborn and stick it out for whenever this is all over. Didn't know how long it would go on, obviously. And one of my thoughts was, I really hope that people don't feel bad about doing either and that people don't Mm -hmm. wear it as a badge of pride that they stuck it out. So many people do. You know? Like, I don't don't think it should be pride. I don't know what it should be. This is like very broad and galaxy brain and we can focus right back in on after I finish this tangent. But I feel like, I feel like it, I feel like part of it is an America thing because I feel like we are taught that like work is your be all end all, but it is a mark of pride to care more about your job and keeping your job than doing what is right for you and your life and the things that you want. So I feel, I, yeah, I, f- I feel like it's very much an outgrowth of this very unhealthy attitude towards labor that is like across all industries in the United States, but it's particularly bad in theater because of this issue we've been talking about of like, it's an arts job that you're supposed to be grateful to have. So thus you are not allowed to complain about um, (laughs) the way that you are treated. Wasn't, and like, 
this is like totally random. And Danielle, you might remember this better than I do, but wasn't there a whole thing when somebody in My Fair Lady on Broadway a few years ago started doing mm-hmm. six shows a week instead of eight and people gave her crap about it? Oh, that happens a ton with like a lot of particularly female performers. And that's actually on our list of episode topics, too. But like I remember I remember that she was very vocal about like I have other things to do with my time and I'm not gonna apologize and a lot of people talked about it at the time she was a mother she was like I would yes. like to spend a day with my child mm-hmm. <laughs> let alone the fact that doing eight shows a week is really hard on your body right yeah. and like no amount of PT paid for by the theater makes up for the fact that you are like doing extremely strenuous work this is kind of it's a little bit of a tangent but not really but it made me think about how going back to the um concept of quiet quitting is that really a thing we can even do in our industry if you're an actor and you're like i just don't feel like doing the show today and you if you're in like maybe in regional theater there's no understudy there's no swing you can't you still have to like go and you have to do it with the technique i feel like we need to define quiet quitting i haven't seen it used in a way of like i don't feel like doing this today more of setting boundaries oh i'm not gonna work until 3 a.m because you decided that this was a big deal two days ago i'm gonna like get the work done that i can Mm -hmm. during the time allotted and you're gonna deal with that right it's more like i'm going to come in do the job that i am paid to do Mm -hmm. and go home yeah i've i've heard it a little bit differently i've heard it more like i do strictly i come in and i do strictly my job you're not going to get you're going to get good stuff out of me, but I don't necessarily need to do the great stuff. If unless you specifically ask for it, it's not going to happen. It's, it feels like a little bit of a difference. I think the way you describe it, there's a little bit more of a mm. of a checking out of a mm. disengagement entirely. And, and I think that applies more. I think you're right that 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 kind of attitude can't really fly in theater there's a scene in smash where megan hilty is doing her ensemble role and she's um totally checked out like she's going through the motions but she's rolling her eyes and she's not throwing her arms up that's what i think of when i think of quiet quitting interesting i think that's very much the version of it that businesses are trying to spin and present it as um in order to i guess make it seem like a worse thing than it is and I think the the response to that from a lot of people has been to say no it's acting my wage which we brought up earlier I also for context I also work in an arts administration segment that is um not as creatively oriented and artistically oriented so I think it's a little more akin to a typical office Mm -hmm. job and so maybe that's why I'm like making that comparison sure yeah but I think it's I think it's true that if you're working a job that adheres to like a show schedule you have so little control like there's no you can't be an electrician and be like I think it's silly that I have to come three hours before we're supposed to start tech to do notes I'm not doing like I guess you I guess you could say that, but like that feels a lot less achievable. That fe- that feels a lot less realistic than an office a person who works in an office saying, "I'm actually done at 5 p.m. I'll check my email when I come back in the morning." Like yeah. I think um I think that phenomenon can't exist 
on a show schedule because there is this sort of like we're all in this together and very tangibly if you're not pulling your weight in a production process you are actively fucking over other people in a much more direct way than like Jen can't finish her report Mm -hmm. when she wanted to you know yeah and I'm thinking of my time in um in the box office at the theater where Percy did his apprenticeship at the same time. You can't check out of Will Call <laughs> if you're at the window. You know, you can't just be like, mm, I'm gonna like leisurely look for the last name Smith. It's go, go, go. Everyone's trying to get in the theater, get to their dinner reservations, and you are screwing over the rest of your team if you don't give it your all in that moment, which is also a whole other customer service issue. But I feel, I feel, I feel like it's similar, very similar to what you were talking about. Well, it's also, about. yeah, it, it also begs the question of, like, if these people are so foundational to the success of the endeavor, why don't you pay them more? Because yeah. similarly, yeah, like when I was doing script supervisor yeah. work, I have a vivid memory of working on a show where they were doing a Wandel probe. It was a new musical. Um, and I had received I had I had received the new pages that I was supposed to assemble for the actors to take home after the Wandel probe 15 minutes before they were done. So I was like sprinting up and down the stairs. I was like making copies. I was trying to get all of this together. I was weeping. I was in tears, handing these packets out to the actors. Um, so yeah, there's no like quiet quitting that. Like you just have to, like you just have to do it. And like, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm 22 years old. I'm not saying to this woman who scares me that like, I simply can't achieve it. Um, <laughs> there's just like no way. Although for the record, the writer, uh, one of the writers saw how upset I was and was like, I'm going to buy you a drink. And I was like, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) Those small moments of kindness, though, like really, they really, they shouldn't mean so much, but they do mean so much. I mean, it is really nice when, like, it's very validating for other people that you're working with to be like, yeah, this sucks. Like, this is a a really shitty system that we've decided to use to do our jobs. Do we think there's much of a difference um, generationally? Do we, because I think that's another thing in the in the discourse, the capital D discourse, (laughs) that, you know, the boomer attitude towards work versus the millennial attitude towards work versus now the Gen Z attitude toward work. I mean, I think something that's hard is just how the economy has shifted. Um, Like when when the regional theater movement starts in America in like the 70s, 80s, you could like with reasonable income like you could start a theater you could buy a building you could set up your lights and like pay people okay not great but okay off of just your ticket sales i think about this all the time yeah and like (laughs) i feel like so many people i'm a millennial i feel like so people so many people my age and younger like that's just not available to us like i can't build a theater from nothing it never has been in the same way that like and not my boss like my boss she took over the theater in the late 90s i don't think it was even available for her to like just build a theater from nothing the way that they did 20 years prior and so i think like she had to work within this system and i think that there's a lot of people my age and younger who are like you either like build something because you are wealthy enough to like run your own theater company and lose enough money until you get popular enough to start making money or you like need to work at a theater and work your way up until you can basically bend it to your will whether that's like becoming senior management or whatever or like 
convincing a board member that like actually this new programs thing with this new works program would be great if we just had another like 20k Mm -hmm. but you can't do that if you're bouncing from like theater to theater to theater all the time um and i think that's hard but a thing that i and some of my peers realized at like 22 was like you either need to build it or break it Mm -hmm. and that's the only way to like make the art that you want to make in this theater yeah there's a huge emphasis on like produce it yourself write it yourself make it yourself because no one's going to hand you an opportunity to do that i also think it because like i'm also i'm also a millennial and like have never in my professional life felt like owning a house and having retirement savings was like a thing that i would achieve with any degree of certainty like sure those are things that I might be able to do um but they were never they are they have never been priorities for me because they just never seemed like a realistic goal so I sort of wonder if part of the mentality of like oh like the world is the world is burning everything is awful like we are on the brink of a climate catastrophe why the fuck am I gonna stay an extra two hours at my job (laughs) yeah yeah you know what I mean? Like I like I think part of it is also just that like we have so much more perspective because we are a so much more aware of everything that's going on all the time because we have the internet and are like people who grew up using the internet and also just like yeah, like I I don't have as much to work towards that is very tangible. Um and I don't necessarily ever think that I will be able to afford to retire. So like why would I burn myself out now because I don't have that like promise of like at 65, I'm just going to vibe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I love that. Turn 65 and vibe. That's the goal, man. <laughs> That's what I was told retirement was. Like, you turn 65 and then you have all this money and you just live off of that. I mean, I don't think people in the generation above mine can do that mm. either. But, like, I, I grew up feeling like that wasn't achievable for me. So I can only imagine people younger than me feel even more like why why bother because like it doesn't it doesn't matter. I will tell you a little bit of a sidebar, but I went to a conference this weekend and there was an inspirational speaker and I left. And I was like I was well and I was on the lower end of the age range at this conference, but I left like 40 minutes in cuz I was just like I'm not buying it. And then everyone else was like, it was, he was so great. He was so awesome. And I was like, am I just a cynical millennial? Before we, we wrap up, I think one thing we really wanted to talk about is there's, there is a lot of artistic and executive leadership turnover in theaters right now. Do we think that this is going to spur on more changes? Or do we think it is going to kind of reinforce the status quo on some of the things we've been talking about? I think that depends on... Because I think what I'm seeing a lot of as new people take over artistic leadership is that marginalized people, particularly artists of color, are being put into positions where they are set up to fail Mm -hmm. and then scapegoated for the failure of those institutions. Um, And I do not think that that will lead to anything good. Uh, But Mm. I do also think there is a lot of opportunity and the conversation around these things is a lot more transparent than it used to be. So I have a measure of hope that like as we as these things continue to happen and people continue to get called in about it, like hopefully we will continue to progress. But also, yeah, yeah I, th- I think I'm a little cynical about it for that reason. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And we haven't even touched the idea of boards. Well, I was about to bring that up, at, and that's obviously yeah, which I which honestly could be like its own a hundred percent. You know, if we're if we're taking the same people from kinds of people onto the boards in our community, how much does it really matter who's at the figurehead? Mm-hmm. Right. It's like when you were Todd, you mentioned before, you know, the idea of like convincing the board of a certain program or a certain like boards boards have to approve budgets and budgets as i'm sure we will say over and over again on this podcast are moral documents and so if your board has to approve your theater's morals essentially there's there's a lot that can go wrong and does go wrong with that system we're also talking a lot about nonprofits and i just want to like throw out there that i'm sure that the that these a lot of these issues are replicated in commercial and for-profit theater as well. Um, production schedules are production schedules. I mean, I think in terms of like work structure, um, the difference between for-profit theater and nonprofit theater is one of them is honest about trying to make money, mm. um, and one of and like the other one has access to more funding sources um, yeah. that are like varied. Um, like, I don't, I don't think that I have ever been on, and I haven't been on a lot of for-profit ventures, but the ones that I have, they weren't like, well, we all get paid better and they exploit us less. Right. <laughs> like, one of those things is true, but the other one is not. Um, mm-hmm. I remember the first, <laughs> the first gig I worked on was, uh, like a rental at Signature Theater in New York. And I got paid so little. I got paid like a Metro card and like 150 a week. Which, like, at least I paid for my Metro card so I could get to the theater. Getting paid in Metro mm-hmm. cards. Yeah. Um, but I remember one of the union stagehands afterwards, they were like, you're pretty good at this. Never accept this amount of money again. Like, just never do that. Good for them. Yeah. Which, that was nice. But, like, no one on the production side was was looking out for me. Yeah, there's... I can't feed myself from Metro cards and comp tickets. And there's also, again, another episode I think we're going to do about unions. And I think the, you know, the, the immense power that actually the production side of things, like those unions, IATSE, um, and I think is it 829, have. And like mm-hmm. that they have really successfully bargained collectively for a lot of their wages and benefits in a way that like other unions either have been less successful at in the industry or facets of the industry that don't have a union at all, like all of admin. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I will say as a as an admin person who currently, my uh, university has a grad workers union, United Auto Workers Local 2322, and it's a game changer. It's so great to have a union. Why aren't we doing this in the theater more often outside of production? It's amazing. I don't understand i mean we're gonna we should we will talk about this but just the lack of organization across the board like i think the will is there but it's just like the lack of knowledge and resources and the one thing i'll say about not having when i realized the difference was so stark was when i was working that box office job and during subs renewals subscription renewal season we were required to stay late at the theater so late that sometimes the Metro was running like every half hour. 
I wouldn't get home till after midnight. And they would, if that happened, if the show, if a show ran that late, those who were unionized got Uber's home paid for by the theater. I did not have that. I had to, you know, walk to the metro, hope that, you know, I was okay. I was a woman alone. Like, it is what it is, but that is not always the best situation. And I had to, you know, get home after midnight some nights because my job was requiring it. Yeah. Since we have to wrap up in a couple minutes, let's let's try and end on a less cynical note <laughs> and say, like, what changes or what things have been happening in the industry that you've noticed on this topic that have been especially positive and that have made you feel better about things and feel more hopeful. I, I've seen some theaters and I, I think it's incredible that they were able to do this. And some of them did it by like vastly changing their apprentice programs. Um, but I've seen people like shrink the size of their apprentice program such that they're able to pay everyone a living wage, uh, which is great. Um, and sometimes that includes housing, like they're taking the housing out of that living wage, but still like not having to pay for rent in New York City is great if you have housing and are effectively making 15 an hour. I think that there are are people who are thinking radically about like, how can we restructure this to not be exploitative? And I think that's great. I also like my hot take is I think every union theater should pay an AEA rate as their minimum wage for working at the theater. I think if you work in admin at a theater, you should make as much money per week as the actors on the stage do, because I think you are as useful for making that production happen. And I think that's true across the board, and I don't know a single theater that does that. Mm. I've never even heard that idea, and I love it. I think that that would be revolutionary. I'm like not being hyperbolic there. Nobody has the money for it, but I think we should do it. <laughs> I agree. Um, I also feel like I've seen, um, like I'm thinking about the Victory Gardens artists in particular, but I've seen a lot of artists who are really embracing solidarity with each other and working in coalition. Mm, and I think that is well. so, yeah, like it's so important to collective action to to recognize that like, you have to stand up for the other people that you work with, even if you aren't directly affected by something. And I feel like we are starting to do that because we, I think there is a detaching, like a movement away from this, like, I owe the theater everything. I should be grateful just to have a job. I have to cling to this job with everything I have, even though it's treating me poorly or treating someone I care about poorly. So I feel like that's something that I'm really excited to see is all of this solidarity across our industry. Yeah. I'm really excited about, I have been seeing people um, fighting back against the low salaries and that that populate our industry. And that's a slippery slope to say I'm optimistic, but maybe with the changing attitudes, maybe it'll uh, improve. At the very least, there's um, definitely a push for more salary transparency. Shout out to Lauren Halverson. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes, we're all, I think we're all big Nothing for the Group fans. Plug for Lauren Halverson's free weekly newsletter, everybody. Nothing for the group. But yeah, I think I'm also really optimistic about, it seems like there's really a shift away from the scarcity mindset that we were talking about earlier that I think is directly related to artists like at Victory Gardens, like at The Flea, banding together and acting collectively, even if it's on a smaller scale than 
maybe unionizing would be i think scarcity the scarcity mindset is like the most harmful thing all right um i think we're about ready to sign off so todd percy thank you so much for joining us for our first episode (laughs) and bearing with us while we figure out what the hell we're doing thank you for having us do either of you want to plug anything Listen to our podcast, Dungeons and Drama Nerds. There's lots of cool people who do theater who are on it. Yeah, I don't know when this is coming out, but we're playing a game of Thirsty Sword Lesbians right now, and that's pretty cool. That's awesome. That's so great. And um, where can they follow, if you are if you want to share, where can people follow you on your social media or the podcast social media? Yeah, uh, for the podcast, you can do at dndramanerds um, on, I think, everything. And for me, you can do at TB Bacchus everywhere. All of this is going to be in the show notes. Yeah, you can look at my, <laughs> look at, yeah, my stuff will be in the show notes. You don't want to follow me on Twitter anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. That's not true at all. <laughs> I knew we were mutual Twitter followers before we ever met in person. That's true. Yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll find me if you're meant to. Anyway. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. And once you have found and followed Percy and Todd on all of their social media, please be sure to find us, Partial View Podcast, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And as the old saying goes, rate, review, and subscribe. It really does make a difference and helps people find the podcast. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not reflect the views of our or our guests, employers, or clients. For more of our opinions and other theater-related content, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and pretty much everywhere else at Partial View Pod. You can also find and support us on Patreon. I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Fetter and on Instagram at Danielle.Fetter. Follow me there. And I tweet and post pictures of my theater programs and books at Alexandra D-L-E-Y. Till next time. Bye. <laughs>